Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I, I would ask how you are, except we've had a we've had a frenzy of, of seeing each other just in the last couple of days. Just yesterday alone, we, we did the interview and we could see each other on our new platform. Then we actually travelled into that there London town for a photo shoot for the book. And then we had our first ever... Discord last night, or Discord in brackets. I still don't know what it is, really. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think the Baroness will be yearning to see you, Kieran. As I think Ali's pining to see me. We've we've, we've had a, just a festival of seeing each other for. We've gone months without actually seeing each other in the flesh, and here we are. Suddenly, can't get enough of each other. Absolutely, and I've got some. I've got some ceviche waiting for me. <gasps> well, really. We I can't don't go off, do I? We can't. We can't let your ceviche go cold. <laughs> no. Yeah, you've also given away the fact that we're we're recording this on Thursday night, Kieran. And we've, yes. we've given away the magic for those people who still think that we do it live on a Friday morning. It's an interview pod, Kieran. We haven't done one for a while, but this one is really worth the wait. It's one of our longer interviews, and it, it could have been even longer, but. Um, the chap we interviewed is very busy. He's a chap called Mark Roberts, who's the Chief Constable of Cheshire Police, but more importantly is the lead on national policing and for the England team abroad. So basically the head honcho of everything to do with policing football. So we were very lucky to get an hour with him to discuss what he does and to discuss some of the financial implications of that. Mark, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Before we talk a little bit about um, policing football and the finances of policing football, can you just tell us a, a touch about yourself and about your career, how you came to be in the exalted position that you are? Exalted, well. Um, yeah, so 30 years uh, in the police. Um, did my first 21 at GMP, really. Um, quite unusual, I did investigative CID roles and uniform at all the ranks all the way through, really. Um, so police, football, all the clubs in Manchester, really, as PC sergeant, inspector. Um, from DC, chief inspector onwards was more in a specialist crime role, so I was in charge of a murder team in Manchester uh, and then was head of investigations for Northwest Counterterrorism and I don't know um, what other industries are like, but in policing, uh, went for promotion, was told um, you're a detective, you're a specialist, we don't need detectives. If you want to get promoted, you'll have to go back in uniform. So um, went in uniform, initially at the city centre, uh, got accredited in all the firearms public order, and then ended up being promoted to Trafford, really, which is the most relevant thing for the football. Um, it, it was 2009 to 2014, was there in charge of it but with that obviously comes um one of the Manchester football clubs so uh for, for five years or so I was in charge of police in Old Trafford um traveled quite extensively with them in Europe because at the time they were successful uh obviously uh playing on a Tuesday or Wednesday instead of a Thursday as it tends to be now 
Um, but because of the experience I gained uh, with them, then became one of the England Silvers who travelled abroad with the England national team. And, and the role's really to liaise with foreign police, try and interpret fan behaviour, try and encourage the host police force to police in a way that's more of a British style, which is lower level intervention engagement. Um, got promoted to Cheshire as an assistant chief constable. Uh, 2014 became the national lead for football policing. Um, so that so that really is liaison with the leagues. If there's a need for a spokesperson, um, making sure that when England, Wales, Northern Ireland play abroad, we, we send police officers to support that operation, most crucially in tournaments, really. Um, moved on as deputy to South Yorkshire, then back here as chief in April 21. Um, so I've been involved in support to France for Euro 2016, which is obviously really demanding. Um, and we thought that was probably going to be the most challenging tournament we'd be involved in. Um, we then went to Russia for the World Cup, uh, which was fairly demanding anyway. And then obviously events in Salisbury happened. So that, that was fairly different. Um, and then obviously, latterly, the Qatar World Cup, uh, which was again uh, a little bit different. Um, so, yep, still got that role, liaise with Premier League, Football League, FA. Um, and as I say, my job's really to coordinate forces around the country to try and get a degree of consistency and to represent the views of the service to other partners. Do you know what, Mark? Normally when I ask a guest for a little resume of their career, they will say something like, well, I worked in insurance for a while and then I became chairman of Colchester. That, without a doubt, is the sexiest resume we've ever had for many guests on the show and our listeners will be very excited. What was it like as a Man City fan uh, policing Old Trafford on a match day basis? Um, do you know what? Um, I had a really good working relationship with the security team at Old Trafford. So I actually took immense pride that I thought our security operation was the best going and, and that that's my job. So, you know, never forget, my job is <laughs> to try and keep people safe. Um, so I got a lot of pride from that. And on that side of the front, United were brilliant to deal with, in fairness. Really good working relationship. Never cosy. You know, pretty challenging at times. Um, but we all wanted the same thing, which was to keep people safe. And the, the secretary at Old Trafford then was a guy called Ken Ramsden, who'd been there years. He, he started in the ticket office and... And worked his way up and, and Ken was united through and through but just really genuine good person to work with and he set the tone really so that that was really good and you know even when a police city and a police the Etihad and other places you it kind of goes out the window because um, you got to concentrate on what you're doing time tends to go pretty quickly when things are happening um, so it was easy to concentrate. Um, I, I've got to say it was um, not by design, but me, the team of officers that took with me were predominantly City or Liverpool fans, actually. Oh, wow. um, which, which, you know, was pretty good, actually, because it meant that, not that they would anyway, but no one was hanging around waiting for a picture with Roy Keane or Paul Scholes. They were concentrating on the job. And, you know, we always found... Um, found the senior people there um, really good to deal with. 
Does that imply, uh, Mark, that you found the senior people at some clubs less easy to deal with? Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> not not in GMP, I've got to say. You know, all the Manchester clubs were were really good to deal with, um, and I, I think when I say really good, doesn't mean that they always agree with us. But when it came to a question of safety, and I think this is still the case there, um, they get safety. So you don't end up in stupid arguments about bits of cash. Mm. Um, and, and you'll, given the title of your podcast, I'm, I'm assuming you know how wealthy football is. <laughs> um, you know, the amount, and it's partly legislative, partly attitude, but, you know, the amount of money that policing spends on facilitating football clubs doing their business is pretty minuscule, really. Um, so I think the rub tends to come when you find clubs penny pinching and I'm not talking about the smaller clubs because policing generally recognise that your smaller community clubs, lower leagues, even non-league, um, no one's after putting those sort of clubs in difficulty. Um, but certainly some of the extremely wealthy clubs who, who will spend more on a bog-standard fullback than the whole of football will pay policing in a year for a whole year's policing, then, then that can cause a rub. So nationally, I get the feedback from forces about what clubs do. Some are really good. Um, some, I think, probably need to adjust the priorities. We'll come on to the finances of policing later, Mark, but I'm, I'm really interested to hear you say that because you'd imagine that whatever it costs that the safety of fans inside and outside the ground would be the number one priority for every football club at every level I think they'd always say it is but then it begs the question sometimes you know um, does that translate when it costs something Mm. and I, I tend to find there's a schism in some clubs and again you know some are brilliant but on some way you see anything on the playing side is absolutely money, no object. But then other bits of the business, they'll try and screw down on cost. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I can think of one wealthy club who were prepared to instruct council to try and knock 50 grand off their annual policing bill. Wow. I, I, and you just think, why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, to, you know, put it in perspective because the rules governing what we can charge for are laid down. So um, we can charge for special police services. And without getting bogged down in the law, basically we can charge for officers deployed on land, owned, leased, or controlled by the club. So owned's pretty straightforward, leased, mm. pretty straightforward. Controlled is the grey area. And that was set down in a case between Leeds and West Yorkshire. And that bobbed along okay. And we always took controlled. And, you know, if you and your listeners are familiar with any football ground, you'll know before and after the certain roads that get shut off. And nothing's happening on that apart from egress and entry. Um, So they, in effect, control for the purposes of the football. And it was if there was a road restriction order, it was blocked off. And basically, it's full of fans or fans stand on the road before they go in the ground. And then there was a case of Ipswich 
versus Suffolk Police, around 2016, I think, where the court ruled that if it's in public, even if the land's controlled by the club, the police can't charge for it. Oh. Now, the judge in that and at the Leeds case both said, we recognise this isn't fair, paraphrasing, but it's law. Um, the immediate implication of that, and if you think of any number of grounds, not necessarily the modern ones set in their own grounds, but the ones that empty out onto streets, mm. if it's in public, we can't charge for it. Well, actually, some of your main flashpoints and areas where you need to control the crowd are in public. So that impacted really in the amount that we can recover. And, you know, we're not saying we want to charge for people in the town centre or detectives who investigate. We recognise as a general policing duty to provide service to the football community as there is with anyone. But given, you know, the cost when we did the big exercise uh, last year, we costed every match, every officer. And um, we reckon that a conservative estimate of um, what we gave in services, so the cost to football for the year was £71 million. Wow. So £71 million worth of policing service provided to football. We actually recovered £13.8 million. So just think, you know, for the whole of policing in that season, through all the leagues, through Champions League, Papa John's Trophy, whatever level, policing recovered £13.8 million. Now, if you look at the sums being spent today on transfer window day, yeah. what are you going to get for £13.8 million? Well, football got policing at every match yeah. that required policing all year, every competition. So... I think that's the kind of inequality that I think is unfair in terms of the financial point of view because that level of service means that we either have to cancel rest days for officers who then have to take the rest days so not available to the police communities or officers are dragged from different places. So that that's the impact for us and I just think it's disproportionately unfair on our local communities because we are, in effect, subsidising football. I'm obliged to ask this question, Mark. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't answer it, though. You're not going to caution me. I'd, I, would, <laughs> I can't remember how the caution goes. It was a long time. It's a long time yeah, since it happened. Um, are you uh, the, the club that tried to save £50,000? Are you prepared to tell us which club that was? No. Fair enough. No, because um, there's, there's, there's quite a few things. I mean, we, um, we made the offer... Um, couple of years ago when there was a lot of focus on online abuse of players um, and, and we are trying to build trust particularly with black players that if they make a report we'll, we'll treat it seriously and we do we, mm. you know we triage it we work with social media companies we get the evidence the UKFPU will give evidential packages to the relevant force and we're really keen and we've got really good relationships with CPS to prosecute so we said we will send an officer to speak to every set of players at a club to explain what helps there. We do it jointly with the PFA, explain what to do if you're subjected to online hate, tell them how to block the devices, but really to reassure players that we take it seriously and we want to work with them. 
said, we'll be flexible. We'll do it whenever you want. We'll do it before the season. And uh, we made the offer, I think, all the way down the leagues and some non-league clubs. Have, have a stab at how many actually bothered replying. Oh, 20? Try lower. Oh, OK. 10? Try lower. No, really? Five. No. Wow, that's... Okay. So, you know, when um, we talk about some of the big statements that are made, we, yeah. we are really keen to work with football and, you know, we work really well with the PFA, kick it out and the like. And, and sometimes, you know, we you just want that bit of reciprocity. Yeah. Um, because we know football is really important, but actually looking after people is pretty important as well. <clears throat> Does each ground present unique problems policing-wise or is there a kind of one-size-fits-all template for how you police a game? No, it... abs- no absolutely. I, no, they're all they're all different and that's what makes it interesting in some ways. Um, so there's nothing formulaic about it. When I've been a firearms commander, I've been public order commander and public order's far harder because of the uh, unpredictable nature of it and the you know the the policing response needs to be more flexible so there's so many variable factors and some of the modern grounds are superb very safe very secure but that still needs a safety operation some of the older grounds are pretty challenging you know in our perspective it's always twofold so one it's security and the other safety so we're not there just to stop disorder and crime and people fighting with each other we're there to keep people safe. But there's a real link between the both because if, if as you saw, you know, Champions League final, where there was clearly a massive failings in Paris of the logistical operation to get people into the ground safely, the Liverpool fans were superbly behaved and very tolerant. And I think probably as a result of the memory of that fan group and what can happen when it goes wrong, so patient, um, you know, no pushing to get in. Um, but because the logistics were wrong and there were safety issues, that prompted what I think is probably now universally acknowledged as a disproportionate policing operation, which then provokes a security situation. So the two are linked equally sometimes if you have a over-heavy security operation, that can build up queues and then you lead to safety issues. So they're all different. Um, I think one of the biggest dangers we face now is complacency. Um, <clears throat> and I sometimes think it sounds like the harbinger of doom, but it's only born out trying to keep people safe. But if you look at the majority of disasters, not just in football or sporting arenas, but broadly space shuttles and things, someone along the line said, I knew that was going to happen, or they saw a risk but didn't feel confident or robust enough to put the hand up and say, there's a problem there, we need to sort it. And I just think we really need to guard against complacency now because it's been so long without a disaster. And if you look at the history of British football, up until Hillsborough, was a disaster every 10 years, pretty much, with people being seriously injured and dying. After that, clearly, there's a massive focus on we've got to get this right. We've got to keep people safe. You can't have families going to football and not coming back. Um, I just worry that everyone needs to keep that focus on it because 
as soon as you start saying it'll never happen again, you know it will. And I think we've had warnings at Wembley, Stade de France, Istanbul last time round, where things could have gone badly wrong. So we need to kind of heed those warnings. I'll come back to domestic football in a moment, Mark, and especially the the history that you spoke about. But when it comes to your, or or the major role that you play with the England team abroad, uh, the the FA are paying for that. How much do do those operations cost you and how far advanced? So if England are playing in Italy, say, how far ahead are you planning with the Italian authorities and how much is that whole operation costing? I mean, the costings are vary massively you know depending on on the thing so not a massive amount to be fair the uk football policing unit which is funded by the home office pick up the costs for that so normally what would happen is a couple of weeks maybe a little bit longer before there'd be a joint delegation of um police fa who we work really closely with and generally a representative of the Football Supporters um, Association will go on a joint visit to look at the stadium, liaise with the police, try and get agreement on various things, um, which may be entrance, is there a ticket collection point, how are you going to get the fans from the city centre to the ground, what size of flag are allowed in, just the whole range of things to try and get an agreement before the actual game itself so you can communicate to the fans and let them know the rules of the game. Um, often if it's, a you know, some challenges will work with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to make sure we get the travel advice out correctly to give people the information to make informed decisions. Then we'll travel out probably a couple of days before the match or the team will. I generally don't go to any of them. Um, they'll then liaise with the local police. Match day minus one is normally a big um, peak period because a lot of the fans will get into the city centre the night before. That's a potential flashpoint. Then there's a security meeting at 10.30 the next morning before the game, uh, and then you're on to the game. And, you know, levels of cooperation vary massively. Um, you know, I've been somewhere where in, with England where um, the local police said, England playing here is the biggest event in our country's history. Um, here are our public order units. What would you like us to do with them? Uh, and basically allowed me to advise and deploy. Um, I, I've been um, in other places, um, you know, where I was in a control room, asked for a bit of, uh, asked for some photographs of people throwing flares. So I was summarily ejected from the control room. Um you know, I won't name the country, but I did say Sacre Bleu. Um, <laughs> so it was challenging. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, sadly, then, that the police forces in most European cities expect there to be trouble when England arrived, do they? I think it's one of the biggest challenges we face, actually, because very much the national strategy for us is to recognise that, you know, fans aren't one group. The vast majority of fans want to go and enjoy themselves and have a good day, see the city. And, and I think you see it when England 
England probably the best behaved fans at World Cup in recent history. You know, certainly Moscow, very few incidents. South Africa, very few incidents. Brazil, very few incidents. Qatar, no incidents. Um, so, so we have to work hard to get that message across because they all seem to think of the 80s and it's a really difficult stigma to get rid of. And a lot of countries, I was going to say in Eastern Europe, but all over Europe, have far worse problems with us now of, of people who want to actively engage in serious violence. So, so the bulk of our fans are absolutely fine. At the far end, you've got a few who would engage in trouble but they don't tend to travel with England. So we've currently got 1,600 people on banning orders who can't travel abroad when England play or their team play. So they're pretty much excluded and we don't tend to get that issue with England. The issues we do get when it's easily accessible um, is people who want to go and it's more of a stag do than a football match. So that's when you get people drinking a lot and fine people can go and have a drink have a drink when i go to football um but sometimes you get the build up you will then get locals maybe who see that as hostile will so they want to attack the fans and the teams that go abroad the police have to work really hard with the local police to say that's not a problem you know low level speak to them some countries they'll do nothing do nothing do nothing do nothing and then deploy the riot police. Whereas our approach would be very much speak to them early, it, it make arrests for low level offences if need be, just to send a message and try and stop it escalating. Whereas I think you find forces with central militia type police, so Garda Seville, CRS, um, that type of almost militaristic force, it will be do nothing until there's a tipping point and then if you're there, you're there, mm. you know, and good luck trying to make a complaint because, frankly, no one's going to be interested. Mm. You mentioned the 80s, Mark, and uh, Kieran and I are old enough to remember some of those dark days when, uh, t- to be fair, some police forces seemed to relish a scrap as much as some of the fans did. And I, I'm, in particular, I, as an away fan, I used to hate going to Cardiff. I used to hate going to any ground in Birmingham because the West Midlands Police Force and the South Wales we were as scared as them, of, of them as we were of troubles. When, when did the emphasis shift in policing? Was there a particular event when the police said, well, we, perhaps we need to, to look at a kind of... Or, or was it simply that football became more gentrified and there was less trouble to deal with? That's really difficult to answer because, you know, I joined the police in 1993. Right, of course, so, of course, um, yeah, yeah. So in the 80s, I was going to football. Yeah. You know, and I know... You know, I share your your view. Some of it was um, not that pleasant to go to. Um, yeah, and I saw some pretty um, well policing that I wouldn't expect to see now. You know, yeah. I've, so I've seen the rough end of that as well. Um, I think very much certainly when I got in command roles. By the time I get in command roles, then generally it has shifted. I think clearly the tipping point was Hillsborough. And after that, the Justice Taylor report with a whole range of things that brought in safety measures, formed the UK FPU, uh, all-seater stadiums in the top two, restrictions on alcohol. So I think those were all really helpful measures. And then I think the integration of security operations between police and clubs 
with the focus on it, we did really well. You know, and nationally, sorry, internationally, the UK's certainly far ahead of anyone, and I still think we are, to be frank. So I think by the time I was in command roles, it was very much uh, an awareness, and I think that's only increased, and it's even more so now about that recognition that the majority of people are there to enjoy themselves, and a, it should be a more customer service experience for us and their contingencies. And what you need to do is focus on those people who want to cause trouble. I mean, I went with United to Amsterdam, and um, there was a Dutch commander there, and I'll, I'll try not to lapse into Steve McLaren. <laughs> um, but he kind of articulated football policing as saying it, it's about um, hot shots, hot spots, and hot times. And his rationale was the hot shots where you control the risk. You've got hot spots where you know there might be problems, but that's only at hot times. So if you cover the hot shots, the hot spots, the hot times, then you're going to stop anyone causing trouble. And I thought that was just a really succinct, punchy way. And it did, you know, sounds better when he's saying hot shots <laughs> than it does in a Mancunian accent. Yeah. But, um, See, the problem, and that's, that's yeah. simply, you know, what you try and do. Yeah, the, the, the problem with that story, Mark, is I know for a fact, I'm looking at Kieran's face, that he's he will have a story about hot times in Amsterdam of his own to share later well, on. Yeah, let's um, <laughs> let, let's talk finance, Mark. If you don't mind, I've got one or two questions for you on the financing of football. And one of the questions we get asked on a regular basis is, you've you've talked about the the, the national uh, price of policing football. Um, going back to Old Trafford on a on a daily basis, a match a match day at Old Trafford, how much are Manchester United paying the police to police a game at Old Trafford? Yeah, I can't really give you specific right. information. It's contract and effects. And, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, probably not as much as you think. Okay. <laughs> probably not as much right. as you think. And and that's fine, you know, because um, we want to get the balance right between minimising the abstraction from normal duty to go to football with keeping people safe. Um, you know, and the Manchester clubs um, are probably as good as I've seen for not penny pinching. Right. You know, and I, I know you can say, well, they're both wealthy clubs, they shouldn't, but there's some pretty wealthy clubs who do. Yeah. <laughs> so it is always, as you would hope, when a club's first thought is, let's keep people safe. Um, you know, and lots of clubs do. There's, and it's not just size, you know. If, if you probably look at a club that is perceived as being really well run um, on the football front, um, Brighton, my perspective is always off the field. The feedback I get is that really good to work with. Right. You know, and, the, and I guess if you're a really good organisation at one element of business, you tend to be a really good organisation at another element of business. So all the feedback I get off Sussex and when I've seen it there, they seem a really switched on club who, who get the balance right, work with the police. And it, it's a nice club anyway. Um but, um, but, yeah, so uh, aside being a, a safety deposit box for hundreds of millions of pounds from Chelsea, um, <laughs> it, it just seems a really well-run club. Mark, I'm going to have to stop you there. I can't tell you how annoying it is for a Palace fan to have to sit and listen to a senior policeman tell a Brighton fan what a lovely club Brighton are. This is shameful. <laughs> um, on the subject of penny-pinching, Mark, I'm, I'm now even more interested in the answer to this question than I was before. 
One of the biggest changes that those of us have been going to football for a long time is the much smaller number of policemen and women in the ground now mm. um, compared to stewards. And there are a lot of fans who think that's because stewards are cheaper than police officers. Is, is that the reason? Um, yeah, it's probably part of the reason. Um, and, and there's lots of... I think we had an issue post-COVID with the availability of stewards and appropriately trained stewards and and some of them really professional um and that's great i I think the problem comes a steward will never have the authority of a police officer yeah because he can't arrest you yeah and i think it's getting the balance right because you don't want an impressive police presence but you need a presence that says if you behave in a threatening or criminal way you're going to get nicked because if you don't do that at the right time, it escalates, it gets worse, other people start behaving like that, and then you end up with problems. So I think we need that relationship, and and sometimes police forces don't get it right, because certainly, so when I was in charge of Old Trafford, for five years I did practically every game at home, and it was a team of people who worked for me, who between us did everything. So I knew year on year how clubs behaved, how the fans behaved, what the trends were. I knew the inside of the ground, inside out. All my team knew it inside out. Um, And we had consistency. So the club knew what we'd tolerate. They knew the way we'd work. We had joint interoperability and that worked really well. So we could get to the right place at the right time. I think too often, and it's something we try and encourage forces not to do, you have a revolving door of commander, which doesn't help the clubs. You know, so there is something from policing. We need to provide that consistent face because there's nothing worse if, if in any walk of life, if a new boss comes in and completely change things. Yeah, yeah. So you need that, and fans need that consistency uh, about what acceptable behaviour is you know, on part stewards, police, etc. So I think we need to get that consistency. And one of the things I've been pushing with football is trying to get an agreement that nationally we have a consistent approach to fan behaviour so that you shouldn't be able to do something in Newcastle and get nothing and then go to Plymouth and get nicked. So we're working with the CPS and trying to work with the leagues, but they're being really slow to come to the party, where we agree that for certain things that might be a letter from the club and a bit higher up it might be a club ban or it might be education and then gradually everyone knows there's some kind of thresholds about behavior and, and get consistency because i think if a policing and steward operation is seen to be fair by the fans you'll get by you you know if you seem to be unfair and, and you know you heart back to some of your experiences um the decent fans are probably not going to attack the police, but they're not going to help. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going yeah, to be yeah, yeah. So it just makes sense to to do it in a sensible, balanced way because then the majority of people see that you're being fair. And just coming back, you mentioned South Wales. Um, the best policing operation I've seen of a football match was the Champions League final at Cardiff. And South Wales brilliant. And I know your experience is a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, of course. But what was brilliant about it was that, yeah, they had 
if there was a fight, we were going to win it. But it started with customer engagement. So the police, South Wales police, and all the stewards at the Millennium Stadium were just so friendly, yeah. so engaging, so professional. And, and it's I've seen a lot of operations. I've seen a lot of good ones. I've seen some pretty dire ones. That, without doubt, is the best policing operation I've seen. Certainly a high-profile match because it started with engagement and speaking to people. So it never escalated to problems. I, I, to be fair to the South Wales Police, which is not a sentence I thought I'd find myself ever saying, the the experience in the 80s there was very much different to the experience in the playoff final yeah. when we got there, when it was uh, quite a joyful occasion, actually. The way the fans were 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 kept apart without being totally segregated. There were Palace pubs and West Ham pubs, and the policing and the stewarding was very friendly. You mentioned leagues being slow to come to the party in that consistency of punishment, for want of a better word. Why Why is that then? Surely, again, that's a, an issue that they would be only too happy to have some sort of consistency on. Well, you'd like to think so, um, but it just tends to be a bit herding cats at the moment. And, yeah, I guess it comes down to the various league structures and to what degree they can enforce compliance on their members they would say <clears throat> but there are a few things where i think we could get quick wins for everyone which just seems a bit sluggish on occasions so is is part of the difficulty there then because when you're dealing with the premier league for example you're not actually dealing with an organisation you're dealing with 20 different organisations within that aren't you yeah and i think being fair to the premier league they would always say that they're a part can you know constituent parts of the clubs they're the members that I guess it can be a bit like herding cats mm. um, from from our perspective you know I've got 43 police forces plus British transport police um, you know we all seem to be able to get our act together and agree something consistently so I think sometimes it's just having that will to, to make it happen uh, just briefly on stewarding again are the police forces involved in in training stewards or is that purely a club by club matter? No. they're not at all no that's club, club responsibility asset sia security industry they'll you know put some standards in place uh, football and sports ground safety authority are looking at enhanced steward training you know we'd happily give inputs um but it's a responsibility of the event organizers to do it because there's there's Plenty of games that take place without any police there. Yeah, that's true. The security operation needs to be self-sufficient without the police. Well, because <clears throat> I, I, I think every football fan knows, and well, every football fan who travels through away games, the inconsistency of stewarding. Is incredible. You know, one or two examples. I was at a game last year where a Premier League game where a woman fan, Palace fan, wanted to be searched by a, a female steward, um, and they the club kicked up a massive fuss. They wouldn't get a female steward. Where I've been, at literally the next game. Yes, of course, quite happily. Get you so it's it's and we all know. That, you know, some stewards don't. They barely touch you when there's, and some get to it. So I don't want to get bogged down. I, I do want to ask you a couple of important financial questions that we get asked a lot. 
uh, our, our listeners mark get very activated by the financial cost and inconvenience of kickoff times being changed by the police for security reasons. What what are the criteria for doing that? And I, and I presume that's a decision you will take reluctantly sometimes, being aware of the inconvenience caused. Yeah, I mean a lot of, a lot of kickoff times are changed predominantly because of broadcast. Broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. You know, so last city last Saturday City played Newcastle for an eight o'clock kick eight o'clock kickoff on a Saturday night. You know, so I was walking back to the city centre with some Newcastle fans who were having to sprint and jump taxis to try and get a train back. Yeah. So the vast majority of fixture changes are from um, broadcasters. So we, or the police's position would be that normally games kick off at three o'clock on a Saturday. I know, I know it's laughable now <laughs> because they're all over, but that, yeah. that was the premise. Um <clears throat> Experience shows us that later kickoffs facilitate greater drinking. You, you don't have to be a scientist to know that alcohol doesn't help people's behaviour. Just go out in any town, city, village of your choice on a weekend and there's your evidence about what alcohol does to behaviour. So football fans like any others, um, and you see it in cricket, you see it in rugby, you see it at horse racing. If people drink too much, the behaviour gets worse and that creates safety issues the vast majority of games it doesn't matter you know so if people if it's a later kickoff on the majority of games people have a drink fine it's not going to cause a major issue there are certain high-risk games where they're difficult enough to police anyway so what you don't want to do is top up alcohol levels across the whole crowd when you know you're going to have a problem anyway so Liverpool-Man United is generally a contentious fixture. Um, Millwall-West Ham. You know, as a uh, Palace-Brighton. There are certain fixtures that you know are going to be heated. And I don't think I'm saying anything particularly outrageous to say that if you have a heated crowd and you add alcohol, it's not going to make it better. So for high-risk games, the police's position will be, say, kick off earlier. If you're going to move from three o'clock, go earlier because it limits the amount of time people will drink before the game. And generally, the way fans, unless it's a derby, will go afterwards. So if you've got Man U Liverpool, Man U Leeds, and it's going to kick off at half five, well, the majority of fans, if they go to the pub at 11 o'clock for a three o'clock kickoff, they'll go to the pub at 11 o'clock. So you're extending the drinking time, you're extending the policing operation in the morning because you're going to have people arriving in the city from 10, 11 o'clock. You've then got to police it all the way through the afternoon. And then after the game, people generally go. If you bring that kickoff time forward, it shortens the amount of time people will drink because, you know, people might start drinking at 11 o'clock, but the vast majority won't start drinking at 5 o'clock in the morning. So you reduce the overall alcohol consumption. It minimises the time you've got to put a load of police officers into the city centre that you're not going to get paid for. And it just reduces that whole hot time, you know, that we our Dutch friend would have said. Um, the hot time and the hot spot gets reduced. So it makes it a safer event um, and you can still have the event. And generally, if you think of the number of TV slots now, 
there are always high-profile games. Not all of them are high-risk. So traditionally, Man City Arsenal is high-profile. It's not high-risk. So that might be something where you could have more flexibility on kickoff time. Leeds United is going to be high-risk. So, so generally, the police ask will be play high-risk games earlier. Don't have them at a late tea-time kickoff. Do broadcasters consult you before they make changes to times? Um, we, we just try to have some conversations with <laughs> uh, some of the broadcasters. Um, generally, the way it will happen is that the leagues will announce the slots. The clubs will have a discussion with the police. The police may say, yeah, fine, no problem. Um if there is an objection from the police, the police can't stop or demand the kickoff time. The certifying authority to allow an event to go ahead is a local safety advisory group that advises the local authority who issue the certificate. If the police make representations and say, look, this is a high risk game. If you allow a later kickoff, that will increase the risk to public safety. And the police may say, and you know what? The risk is so great, we're not going to come. Oh, really? Oh, right. So that's the nuclear option for the police to say, you're increasing the risk. We are not willing to pour so many officers into this to make it safe for you that you can have your event. So we're not going to come. And if the police don't come for a high-risk game, then it's not our decision, but practically it's probably not going to happen. So the police will make representations, Safety Advisory Group will hear submissions <clears throat> and the Safety Advisory Group may say, well, you can't have the game without the police, so you're going to have to reduce, change kickoff time. Or they may say there'll be no away supporters. Or they may say we'll reduce capacity. Or there'll be no alcohol sales. Or you'll have enhanced measures. And, and they can impose or suggest to the certifying authority mitigation measures that reduce the risk but one of them might be find a different kickoff time. So we, the police don't dictate it, but they'll make representations to the safety advisory group, which may, well, generally would listen to those and the kickoff will be held at another time where there isn't as great a risk. Mm. Does that make sense as a process? It, it does. It makes absolute sense. Um, I'm aware of uh, time issues, Mark, but I've got two questions for you, if, if I may. Many of our listeners are very keen on the reintroduction of safe standing because they think it may mm. it may cost less ticket wise. It it probably won't. I'm guessing. What are your views on on safe standing? Okay, so I've been doing this for nine years as national lead. My, my position on safe standing is probably the most often misquoted. Okay, of all of them. So I kind of welcome the chance to hopefully bear with me, and I'll explain. My thoughts. So if the proposition is introduction of safe standing in itself, is that a problem? Does it make it safer? Then yeah, absolutely not a problem. Of course, we've got the capability to introduce rail seats and generally it won't cause issues. So there's, there's not a problem with that from my perspective. When it was discussed, um, they were going to bring it in. We said, fine, yeah, bring it in. But bear in mind the impact it can have on behaviour. So what we've seen in other places is where you have standing, 
unless you make sure that people stand in the, their allotted space and you can't migrate, then you'll get people moving into the area because you want to stand in the standing area. So you can get overloading of particular areas. If I'm there with my kids and you're there with six mates and you're stood next to me and your five mates want to come and stand next to me, you've got to make sure that the families don't get pushed out and you end up with this bulking together of people. So what we've seen not that far away from England is people when they've done this, it becomes almost a no-go area for stewards and police. And then you get groups saying, no, no, if you want to, we're going to stand behind the goal. No one else is coming. I'm not bothered what's on your ticket. The other thing is if, as a matter of physics, you want to throw something, it's easier to do it if you stood up. Oh, uh, right, okay. If you're doing it from a seating position, you're more visible. Equally, if you want to shout racist abuse, sometimes it's easier to hide in a crowd. So one of the ways my views have been misrepresented is that if you stood up, it makes it more likely that you'll shout racist abuse to throw something. Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. But it can be harder for you to be identified. Now, lots of places will have safe standing and you're not going to get these issues. But our request as part of the regulation was if you have safe standing, have a stewarding plan that makes sure people stand in the right place. Have a stewarding plan that if I decide I want to go and stand next to you, me and my five mates can't shove the family out of the way. So there's a stewarding plan to cover it. Have enhanced CCTV so that if someone wants to throw, wants to throw a missile or shout racist abuse, you've got a better chance of seeing them. Ideally, have people season ticketed so that you know who's in what place. So it was all about ensuring that things were in place so that you can have the standing that people want safely, but without it negatively impact on those individuals who want to misbehave. Uh, and the migration thing's real. We see it every England away game. People will move in. People get shoved out of the way. Um, so, so that was our ask. Uh, and where it's been in, implemented well, great. You know, Man United, again, did it really well. So if you wanted to go in the safe standing area at Old Trafford, it's a set area. You can't migrate the whole of a bowl and get in it. It's ticketed, good CCTV, well stewarded, not an issue. But when you see some of the bowl stadiums in this country, if you can migrate all the way around, yeah. and people used to do it, didn't they? You yeah, know, yeah. When you can walk all the way around, you go to whichever any team's kicking at. So you've got to make sure that people can't just migrate to that area and squeeze in because it's hard to get people out, yada, yada, yada. So, so that, that's the position on it. Yeah, absolutely fine. Just manage it properly so that it doesn't create an atmosphere which is all male, 16 to 55, probably in drink. Females don't want to go and stand in it. Older people don't want to stand in it because we know that when you get that mix, it's detrimental to overall behaviour. It almost brings us back to the very start of the, our conversation about penny pinching because uh, it's great that Man United do it well, but for some clubs, when you say, well, it needs extra CCTV, it needs extra stewarding, they're not going to pay for that. So it won't work quite as well, will it? So that's really interesting. One final question, and you have uh, 
mentioned this in passing just a few minutes ago. You recently completed um, an independent review on policing football in Scotland. And one of the things we've seen the big two clubs do there is ban away fans on occasions for the, from the other club. Is, is banning away fans uh, a tactic you would advise? Are you a fan of that tactic? Um, look, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, pretend to tell police Scotland how to do their big events because they do it, they know it. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm always loath to comment on other people's operations because if you don't know it. I'd always rather see away fans there. Mm. Safety obviously comes first. If that, if the authorities feel that's the only way to do it safely, then that's going to be the way it's going to be. But I think it loses something if you don't have the away fans there, doesn't it? And the atmosphere and uh, football is a passionate sport. You know, we, we don't want to sanitise it. it. It's a release for lots of people. Um, safety's always got to come first. But I think. It's generally a worse experience if you if you don't have that um, away fans there mm. to add, add to the atmosphere. Uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure to talk to you this morning. It's your honesty and your insight have been really fascinating, and our, our listeners will be just as interested, I'm sure. And I wish so. Wish you all the best for the future. Um, not Man City, obviously, or Brighton, but uh, on a personal level, to both of you. Oh, don't be <laughs> Next, next time you beat me, you can buy me a treble. Oh, that's going to be. Well, I've got plenty of time. I've got plenty of time to save up for that, then, haven't I? <laughs> Churlish is a word my wife uses about me often. <laughs> it's very nice to meet you, Mark. Thank you for talking to us. All right, thank you. I mean, Kieran, it, it's absolutely fascinating interview. There's there's so much to unpick, in, including the fact that. Yeah, we talked this week um, about one of the richest clubs in the world, Chelsea, cutting down or removing the subsidy for away coach travel. And now we're being told by Mark Roberts, head of policing for football in the, in the whole of England, that there are Premier League clubs who are trying to avoid paying for policing. One in particular who we wouldn't name, which I don't think, but you know, trying to avoid £50,000 costs for policing. And that, that incredible figure when he, he said that, the police are being underpaid by about £60 million across the Premier League every season. Yes, I think that that indicates it's quite a challenge uh, in terms of Mark's role. Uh, I thought policing the whole of, of football in the country for £70 million, to me, that, that seems like we're all get, we're getting pretty good value for money you as well. Think, yeah, you know, that, that'll get you, a, that'll get you a, a, a Brighton fullback going to Chelsea. <laughs> And a third choice one at that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was fascinating. I I, I learned a lot. I I felt that the argument that Mark put forward, especially with regards to a very measured response to safe standing, gave me a lot of food for thought. Yeah, as, as well things which which I because I'm I'm old school like you. Yeah, you know, I, I quite like the the return to the terraces and. I, I do feel that at times, especially behind the goals, we have unsafe standing at present. Yeah. Uh, but his uh, his his analysis, I, I thought, was was excellent. Well, also slightly worrying in that uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm a, I'm a fan of of safe standing. Emphasis, of course, on the word safe. Absolutely, always. But there are so many football fans who have assumed that 
that standing tickets would be a cheaper option. And everything Mark told us about how much it would cost clubs to implement proper safe standing would indicate that it's not going to be a cheaper option, is it? It's going to be as expensive, if not more so, than seated tickets. And especially once clubs work out that they can use the cost of equipment, etc., to raise those prices, they will certainly do that. Yes, I think there's a much broader issue of the direction of travel of match day tickets, um, especially when owners of clubs see that to a certain extent we've 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 not got a lot of upwards room in terms of broadcasting revenue in its present form. Sponsors aren't going to be willing to pay that much more, so let's let let's find another way of of generating additional money from fans, and and, and that that's. That that's for, you know, a separate issue in terms of what we discussed with Mark, but there's there's no indication. I I know that I've, I've I've spoken to people who've attended meetings between clubs and fan groups, and the first thing that the chief executive has said on every single occasion is, "We're not going to have more seats in all probability." Yeah, you know, lots of people say, "Well, you know, it, it, you take up less space standing." Well, you know, safety advisory groups, and you've got issues in terms of stewarding. You've got issues of in terms of. Uh, safety and transport to and from individual grounds. Um, so I think there will be objections there. So it's it's going to be one standing for one seat. So therefore, from the club's point of view, it's going to have to go and pay for the rail seats to be in, in implemented. Um, and, and Mark was, I think he was, he was very positive in terms of what's happened at Old Trafford. So you know the, the the Glazers who who get a lot of criticism, much of which is which is justified. Um, I, I think Manchester United have made a good decision here. I suspect the Glazers have had relatively little to do with it, but that's, that's mm. a separate issue. And, and just finally, Kieran, talking of uh, ticket availability, this is something I want to flag to talk about on a future pod because we met. Uh, let, let's be honest, we're we're talking on Thursday evening, and we met today in London with Guy for the photo shoot for the book, and I I walked through. Uh, Piccadilly and I walked through Leicester Square and down through Covent Garden and I passed four ticket agencies most of whom selling tickets for West End shows but all of whom had tickets available for every Premier League game in London this weekend Um, and they're pretty big games it it does make me wonder where they're getting these tickets from Um, so that's something we could talk about maybe in a week or so's time. In the meantime, thank you to everyone who has donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them and make a small monthly contribution, that'd be very kind of you. You also get access to our chat community. We've just finished the Discord, as I say, a very entertaining and interesting it was too. And also you get access to our regular quizzes and we will be having one to celebrate the launch of that book that I've mentioned about eight times now because producer guy says I've got to mention it more often than we have been doing because we're too modest. So and so so it's like having a teacher that we beck and call Kieran. Isn't it? Um, so you can do all that by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of And finally, if you'd like to pre order that new book, which I'm not mentioning, Unfit and Improper Persons, An Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club, or one of our other books, or get yourself a price of football t shirt or some of the new merch that we're looking at, then go to our new look website at price of football.com. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football.
Reprise of the Vogue of Paul.